Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, Ben, you ready? Ready. All right. Three, two, one. Let's jam. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I speak with Bin Ren, founder of SigTech, a financial technology platform providing quantitative researchers with access to a state-of-the-art analysis engine. This conversation is really broken into two parts. In the first half, we discuss Bin's views on designing and developing a state-of-the-art backtesting engine. This includes concepts around monolithic versus modular design, how tightly coupled the engine and data should be, and the blurred line between where a strategy definition ends and the backtesting engine begins. In the second half of the conversation, we discuss the significant pivot SigTech has undergone this year to incorporate large language models into its process, or perhaps more accurately, allow large language models to be a client to its data and services. Here, Bin shares his thoughts on both the technical ramifications of integrating with LLMs as well as his philosophical views as to how the role of a quant researcher will change over time as AI becomes more prevalent. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bin Ren. Bin Ren, thank you for joining me today on this episode. This will likely go down as one of the more unique episodes I've done. I am really excited to dive in to the world of AI. I know I've done a bunch of episodes on machine learning before, but this is probably the first that I can really say is more AI focused. And maybe we'll get into a little bit of the difference between machine learning and AI, but really excited to have you here. I know you're on the cutting edge of what's been going on this year with things like ChatGPT and large language models. And I'm really excited to learn about how you are introducing them into your business. So thank you for joining me. Corey, it's such a pleasure to join you today. So I really want to start with your background. You actually have a somewhat non-traditional background for entering into the systematic investment space. You started your career in the world of cloud computing. Now, today, cloud computing is ubiquitous. Every quant developer probably touches it in some capacity. But you were actually one of the earliest developers on the Zen virtualization technology. And you were an early engineer for Amazon's AWS platform back in 2004 and 2005. And I just wanted to get a sense from you just for history's sake. What was it like in those early days of building what we now call the cloud? It's kind of um, 
interesting to think that it's almost 20 years ago, actually exactly 20 years ago. So in October 2003, I started as a PhD student in computer science at Cambridge University in England. I was a member of the research group that built and designed the then virtual machine monitor. The cloud computing at the time, I don't think at the time people even had the right name for it. I don't think we even had the phrase cloud. 2003 was a very chaotic period because what happened is the Intel was the biggest semiconductor manufacturer in the world at the time. And they had been riding this wave of Moore's law for decades. But they finally hit a ceiling in terms of single core CPU performance. And as a result, for them to continue to churning out CPUs that's doubled performance every 18 months, they really didn't have a choice but to go down the path of introducing more CPU cores on the same chip. So 2003 was like the watershed moment when they started to introduce dual-core, quad-core, and later on eight-core, 16-core CPUs to the market. So that was like the backdrop of the industry, the semiconductor industry at the time. Now, what that meant was that we suddenly have this supply of a new kind of CPUs, and they were looking for a killer application. One natural way to utilize this new computing power was to run so-called multi-processing or multi-threading applications. But the issue with that was that it's very difficult to write multi-processing and multi-threading applications. It's not a simple switch. Almost all the programmers are very used to and they are trained to write single thread, single process applications. I would say it's still the same situation even like 20 years later today. So that really didn't quite work. So they were looking for killer applications. And someone said, maybe instead of forcing developers to change the way they work, we can divide the multi-cores we have today and chop them up into multiple single-core virtual machines. And then we can run kind of a four environments on the same physical environment. And that's how essentially the cloud was invented. So that piece of software that was responsible for slicing up physical resources like CPU and memory and hard drives, and then encapsulate each slice in a very secure and isolated environment, and then present it as if it's just like a real physical computing environment to the developers was the virtual machine hypervisor. At the time, there was only one company offering something like this. It was VMware. It was very expensive and it's very slow. So my research group was building something called Zen, and we took a drastically different approach. And it turned out to be 100 times faster. And it was open source. So we put the entire source code on Git. And funny enough, the Git was created by Linus Torvalds in 2005, the creator of Linux. So it's also in the same period. Let me just digress a bit to talk about like why he literally took like one year off from Linux kernel to build Git. The Git was a more decentralized version control system because the ecosystem Linux was growing at such a breakneck pace that there are just too many developers around the world all trying to contribute to the Linux kernel source code. 
So Linus realized the bottleneck was the version control system they were using. So he actually had to build a more decentralized version of the version control from scratch, and that was called Git. And Git then led to GitHub in 2008. So we put our source code in Git and made it easily approachable and usable by pretty much everybody in the world. And I remember there was the first external developer who found our repository of source code, started to use it, and reported some errors was someone from a developer's team from Amazon based in Cape Town. So we were in the same time zone, and that team, at the time, obviously, we didn't know that would morph into the AWS, the cloud computing business at Amazon. But that team was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, external contributor to the Zen project. So years later, I think five, six years later, they launched AWS in 2007 or eight, and the entire AWS cloud environment was based on the multi-core CPUs by Intel and the Zen virtual machine hypervisor. That was a really fun time. I hope you at least got some Amazon stock out of it for all your contribution. I'll say on behalf of all quants, thank you, because I know cloud computing revolutionized the way in which data analysis was performed. It's been instrumental in so much of the work that I know we do and as well as quants everywhere. So hugely impactful on the industry. And and I'm sure we could spend just a full hour going into the tech side. My background being computer science, I I absolutely love this stuff. But I want to keep this episode on track because I want to make sure we get to the really juicy stuff that's happening today and not just talk about the past. So I'm going to jump forward a decade just to keep this process going, just to keep the conversation going, to your time at Brevin Howard, where you helped build the Systematic Investment Group. And the question I have for you here is that Brevin Howard is well known as a macro hedge fund, a discretionary macro hedge fund in many ways. And I'm curious as to what sort of lessons you learned trying to run a systematic trading team inside of that macro process. I started my career as an equity exotics trader. So my initial background was in fairly exotic, fairly complicated derivatives. And I started to do a lot of multi-asset you know, structuring and derivatives and then systematic strategies. So at Brevin, there are multiple lessons I've learned, which has a huge impact on both me as a person and my career. The first thing I want to talk about is, you know, a discretionary macro hedge fund is extremely derivatives heavy, right? So I think the bread and butter of a macro hedge fund is you have these traders coming up with ideas. And then the secret sauce, I would say, is mostly about how to structure and sizing the trade. For people from a more traditional or pure systematic trading background, we tend to see our job as more of a prediction problem. We think about financial assets, and we think that the financial assets, if the market is efficient most of the time, then the financial assets are fairly priced, which means the returns are more like a random walk. Therefore, we seem to impose ourselves a prediction problem with a benchmark of trying to beat the market in terms of predicting tomorrow when a certain asset is going to go up or down and trying to do better than just 50-50. Now, in the environment of a discretionary macro hedge fund, it made me realize, actually, one of the implicit assumptions we had when we thought about this beating 50-50 prediction problem 
was like actually we were assuming the assets is linear. And the assets were offering a linear payoff, like futures or ETFs or single stocks. They have very little, if any, convexity. Whereas in a derivatives world, when payoffs is highly unlinear, then 50-50 is not really the right benchmark because you could be betting on something that only become in the money like 20% of the time, but the payoff could be five, six, seven, eight times. So it's really the payoff and prediction become two sides of a coin. And so we realized, depending on how we frame the problem, sometimes it's easier to crack it as a prediction problem, but sometimes it's easier to just assume we're not knowing better in terms of probability, but we may can do something better in terms of finding the right trade structure or there's some instrument temporarily mispriced and think of that way. So I think the first lesson was those two angles just simply gave us like a, a second problem space for us to think about what we worked on. The second lesson I learned during my time there is that Brandon Howard was a discretionary micro hedge fund. So they didn't actually have any legacy technology stack or tech debt devoted to systematic trading. So the entire project turned out to be a greenfield project. That allowed my team to adopt what we thought at the time, the most relevant, the most advanced and state-of-art technologies and libraries, such as the Python Pandas, such as the different system designs, and we certainly designed a system with a view about running it in the cloud, etc., etc. So that, I felt, was a big blessing. Because most of the systematic firm going back decades, and they have years of tech debt. And I personally think in a financial institution, the technology development tends to be a means to the end. And it always simply acts as a tool to the front office, whether it's trader or portfolio managers. And because the in-house technology is not a product offered to the entire market, so there's no competitive pressure on the technology team or the technology designs to be very competitive as long as it works it's okay so being able to do a massive greenfield project from scratch in Bremen Howard had massive benefits the other one I learned at Bremen Howard is what I would say a brutal intellectual honesty because for discretionary traders they have this culture because Every bet they make, the payoff in the end combines the skills with the luck. So it's very important for the traders and the risk managers to understand why they make money. They try to explain their profits and losses so that they know when they are getting lucky or unlucky or the trade simply doesn't work. I think for systematic trading, sometimes we can be a bit too data-driven, too data-focused. And sometimes we even build models that we don't really fully understand or can interpret ourselves. This discussion is not new and can even get a bit philosophical. But at Brevin, it was quite important that for every single strategy we build, we had to have some proper explanation and confidence in why this thing works and what assumptions it works and so that we know when it seemingly stops working is it because luck or is it just because some fundamental assumptions are no longer valid i think that was quite important 
I would say those are the three top lessons I've learned during my time at Brother. Now, you initially spun out your firm, SigTech, with what you've described to me as a, quote, state-of-the-art backtesting engine. Uh, you talked a little bit about having the opportunity to build something from scratch internally at Brevin, and this is what you eventually lifted out. I'm curious, in your opinion, what does that, quote, state-of-the-art backtesting engine actually look like today? Hmm. I think even today, there's no clear and standard definition of what a backtest engine is. I think many people think it's a quite kind of simple thing, which is just like oh, buying and selling the weights and returns, and you do the linear algebra, you get your results. So it makes sense that there's no standard definition for it because there's no off-the-shelf backtest engine. There's no industry standard. You can't just buy something and plug into your system. Everything is bespoke. So when I talk about our backtest engine, I think there are certain features and design choices we made very early on. I think that made it a bit different from most of the efforts I've seen. The first one is truly multi-asset. Again, that's because the market we were trading, we were trading pretty much everything. So we had to support different types of assets. And not just different asset classes, but also including exchange-traded assets, but also over-the-counters, derivatives especially. And then we have to support linear and convex instruments. So we have to do spot contracts. We have to do full FX forwards, swaps. But then we have to do swaptions and equity index options, options on treasury futures. So really kind of have a very heavy part of the whole system is to be able to do like proper pricing. And then we designed uh, very flexible abstractions. We want to support three different levels of abstractions in our system, which is like instrument, strategy, and portfolios. So instrument is just any type of financial instrument. So strategy is just combined using a certain set of signals to buy and sell different kinds of instruments. And portfolios is just a basket of strategies that you can allocate your capital to, whether based on dollar amount or based on risk limit or even based on performance, et cetera, et cetera. But then we decided that we want the system to be also to be quite easily composable, meaning that what happens that we want to put some strategies in a portfolio, but we also want to add some instruments. Should that just work? And what if we have a long-only portfolio, but then we want to turn that into a long-short portfolio? Can we just simply add a short leg to it? So this kind of a composability was also quite important because we don't want to handcraft each one of these possible combinations. So we made a conscious decision to have a kind of unified abstraction to allow us to combine different types of instrument strategy and even portfolios quite flexibly. And then we have to decide, like any computer systems, what kind of compromise we want to make between speed and the exact details. So here is like, I think we designed the whole system in a way that at the core of the whole thing, let's just call it the whole engine. All it does is, given the list of trading instructions, buying and selling instruments on this time, all it does is, okay, I don't even need to know what kind of 
instrument this is. All I need to do is someone tell me the price and someone tell me how I should charge the execution cost, and then I will do it. So this bit is almost like running, to borrow an analogy, it's almost like running assembly or machine code. It can be very fast. So the abstraction is quite low level. So that bit is highly optimized. So it's entirely written in Cython, it's compiled, and it's very fast. I think one thing that we certainly gave a lot of thought to was about how to model execution costs. Because some instruments, if you think about it, the transaction cost is charged per unit. For example, when you trade single stocks in the US, you pay a fixed amount per share. It doesn't matter the share you're trading at $1 or some share that's trading at $300. So that makes a big difference. It reminds me of the reason why Warren Buffett refuses to split his stock for so many years because to minimize the transaction cost on a percentage basis. But then there are lots of instruments whose transaction cost actually is a percentage, especially in the derivatives world. Like when you do like FX forward, when you do options, the execution cost is always quoted as basis points. So be able to deal with that properly is quite important. I think that's where the idea that we have to really understand and be very detailed about the data models becomes a very important decision because Imagine your normal or simpler backtest engine operating simply at the level of returns and weights, then you become essentially incapable of applying execution costs, which are per unit. You can only do maybe as a percentage, but you won't be able to model transaction costs or market impact on a per unit basis. So it's a quite complicated system to build, and it's hard to define the boundaries of where the backtest engine starts and where the backtest engine kind of stops. But we certainly think that over the years, after multiple times of iterations, I think the entire code base is maybe just under 1 million lines of Python. But I think over the last eight years, we must have written and deleted like three or four millions of lines of code. So it effectively has been rewritten three or four times. I think we made a bunch of very important decisions. And so far, I think we got most of them right. Well, I'm sure every programmer can sympathize with the idea of deleting three or four lines of code for one they actually write. That, I think that's the typical process. But I want to drill into a point you made both at the beginning and at the end. You sort of came full circle there. You joked at the beginning of that last answer that you don't just abstract every instrument away into a time series and just do a simple linear algebra approach, which I think is sort of the naive first cut that most people would make in building a backtesting engine. But your engine is actually very tightly coupled to the data models themselves. The example you gave there, one example you gave was about transaction costs being different for different instruments. I was wondering if there were other reasons as to why coupling the engine so tightly with the data models is really important for building a robust backtesting engine? Yeah, I think the other major reason is, for example, when we do the data models for different instruments, we actually can control the timing of the execution. Because, for example, we know for a listed instrument, let's say single stocks, is listed on a certain exchange in a certain venue, we actually, through the data models, 
We know what's the time for the closing auctions. When is there the exchange holidays? So then we can model that because that's quite important. Because sometimes the trading ends like half day, right? So you think that's a one day return, but it's more like a you know half day return. So that has certain impact. And then there are certain global markets, especially like FX. So there's no closing auction for FX; it just trades all the time. So you have to take snapshots of those instruments intraday to sync up, and then I think the timing thing also applies to the ETFs, the ETFs with global basket as underlines. So some of the assets are not trading, some are trading. So how do you model the ETF versus the NAV? How do you do the approximation? So I think that gives us a lot of flexibilities. The other thing I would say. Is that the data models also allow us to support intraday? Since we are modeling the execution, the timing so explicitly, then we actually can do intraday as well. For example, we can do strategies that can have signals or execute at arbitrary, like timestamp during the day. We actually support in terms of granularity of frequency. We support up to one minute bars. So we can execute or have a signal at any of these bars, but with the timing, you are not constrained by the fact that you don't need the the step of each time series to be evenly spaced. You don't have to worry about these hour returns or like day returns. Now you can say, oh, this is like the price is over 15 minutes, but then the next time you're thinking about maybe it's like three minutes. So that gives us a lot of flexibilities. So our backtest engine and the whole system around it. Can support like the bread and butter daily frequency or other medium frequency strategies, but we can also support the live streaming, more sporadic intraday trading. The typical design I see with backtesting engines across the industries is this pipeline approach, where you have data ingestion that gets fed into some sort of signal processing, that gets fed into a strategy, that gets turned into an allocation, that gets fed into the backtesting engine. And your approach philosophically strikes me as a much more monolithic design, where you're somewhat blurring the lines between the strategy and the backtesting engine itself. Why do you think this is an important design decision for you to make? Our philosophy is not vastly different from what you just described, because our typical workflow of our user is still. Data ingestion, but that's taken care of by us at SigTag into our data lake. So that's taken care of. But it's still like data ingestion to signals. So a portfolio manager uses the data to generate signals, independent how he ends up expressing that idea or signal into the trades. So, and then I think the biggest difference is when he expresses his signals or trade ideas into strategies. I think we just offer a lot more. Control a lot more details to allow the portfolio manager to really express exactly he wants to implement. So this really goes back to what I said a bit earlier. The lesson we learned at Brevin Howard is, I think there's a lot of say juice in terms of sizing trades and structuring trades, especially the ones that offer you a asymmetric payoff, some convexity on the payoff. I think be able to express sufficiently all these different kind of sizing and structuring 
complexities. So we really put a lot of thought into the strategy bit. And once you have that, again, it's become quite similar to the normal approach, which is when you build a portfolio that you can allocate capital in terms of dollar or risk to these different strategies. I think really the key difference here is not so much on the workflow itself, but the fact that we put a lot more functionalities and a lot of kind of different design decisions in a strategy bit to allow people to express sizing and structuring. Can you talk a little bit about how you incorporate alternative or maybe even more specifically unstructured data into this design? I think about alternative data in two broad categories. The first one is alternative data still in a time series form. Right? So for these kind of alternative data, it's reasonably straightforward because you're still dealing with time series. Then really the challenge is, A, can you control the quality? Because when you validate and clean alternative data time series, it's very different from validate and clean financial asset like return time series, right? There are different distributions. So that can be a bit tricky. The other bit, and that's a challenge, is to successfully map this alternative time series to the right entity in the financial market. It could be mapped to a company, could be mapped to an instrument. So this is the first category, but still it's reasonably straightforward. When it comes down to the second one, which is unstructured alternative data, we are talking about non-textual data or even maybe images. There are lots more modalities to this kind of data sets. Then there's a lot of extra complexity of building essentially a completely different data ingestion and data pipeline and the entirely different data infrastructure to deal with it, right? We had nothing to do with time series. So for a long time, people tried to apply some kind of machine learning techniques to unstructured data, such as natural language processing or image processing with the goal to turn them into useful time series. I would say maybe with limited success, because this this transformation essentially is part of the process of looking for signals. It's, it's quite complicated because the truth is when you apply some NLP or other machine learning techniques to turn them into time series, you can't exactly measure the quality of those time series by themselves, right? You have to basically apply the time series and try to turn them into trading signals and with signal into strategy before you can see whether this works or not, right? This feedback loop is really long. So feedback loop is very long, and the feedback is therefore with very low quality. And when it happens, because you have, you already jumped through so many different steps, it's hard for you to ascertain which stage is responsible for the poor quality. Is it because of the natural language processing technique is not good enough, or is it because what I did with the time series was not very good enough? So it's just very challenging. I think not until today, with the arrival of large language models, which is essentially built and trained from scratch to deal with textual data and now multi-modalities. Not until today, with large language models, do we have, I believe, really promising solutions to bridging this huge gap 
between unstructured and structured time series. Well, that's a great segue because you made a really significant shift in your business this year to integrate this backtesting engine technology with large language models. And I'm curious, what was the catalyst for that decision? And how does it ultimately change the user experience of your technology? So we started SIGTAG four and a half years ago. And the biggest hurdles that our users encounter in their daily workflow, are uh, A, they need to access high-quality data, and B, they need to know rather proficiently how to write Python code to use our platform and uh, analytics framework. And three, obviously, the user have to have very good market knowledge, and they all spend a tremendous amount of time every day just to stay up to date about the market and the world in general. So when I think about how can we help the users to be more productive in our workflow, the key thing here is a lot of them, it's very hard or very rare to have someone who are very proficient in programming and very proficient in market knowledge and somehow very proficient in dealing with data. It's just very hard. So we have users who told us they love using our product, but his issue is whenever he went on a holiday for two weeks, he came back and then he realized he forgot <laughs> how to write some of the code. He had to reread the tutorials, the API references. It's just a lot of work. So we spent a huge amount of effort over the years to try to make it easier for our users and the prospective users. But I would say all those efforts were incremental until at the beginning of this year, when I seriously started using the ChatGPT. The ChatGPT was released in, I think, less than a year ago. At the end of November 2022, it was came out with ChatGPT 3, which was impressive in the sense that it felt like a 14, 15-year-old teenager, but you can have a decent conversation with ChatGPT. And then in March this year, they announced GPT-4. I think that's for me, was the moment that I realized this is a big deal because GPT-4, I think, is about 10 times better in terms of the reasoning capabilities. It can write code. It scored, I think, the top 10 or 20 percentiles in almost all the different domains professional and university entrance exams, I distinctly remember that GPT-4 passed the bar exam in the state of New York in the top 10 percentiles. So suddenly from March this year, we have access to this for the first time, essentially intelligence as a service. <laughs> we have this maybe the number one polymath in the world, a 10 slash 20 percentile expert in multiple domains at our fingertip. And we just had to pay $20 to access it. And we all know that ChatGPT turned out to be one of the most successful launch of any computer software in human history. And they had hundreds of millions of users and over 100 million paying users within a few months. So then I realized that the large language models, since it was so good at writing code, and especially after I tested it with certain financial market knowledge, like when this happened, when inflation goes up, how do you think the yield curve should move? It had all these concepts of like steepening, flattening, this idea of inflation impact on asset pricing. 
Undoubtedly, a lot of the economic literature was part of the training data sets. And then I realized, why not make the leap of considering large language models as our potential users? So why do we have to constrict our business to providing the data and tools to human users? Why don't we want to also do the same thing for large language models, treating them as potential customers? And the implication of that is if we can do this, then people who may not have the necessary expertise in programming, in data processing, in market, they can actually interact with the large language models through natural languages and then leverage the AI to solve the problems for them. Maybe not at the level of professional with decades of experience, but certainly magnitudes better than what they can deal with today. Um, so by making this jump, this pivot, not only can we expand our total addressable market to include AI models, but we actually also able to reach a tremendous number of human customers because just by introducing AI as the intermediaries. So it was one of the most important decisions I made at SigTech. Very happy the whole company got behind it very quickly and only took us about four and a half months from that email I sent to everyone to actually getting the whole infrastructure we architected and built and launched our first AI product. For other firms that are evaluating OpenAI and ChatGPT and considering some form of integration, can you talk a little bit about your diligence process and the path you took to get comfortable enough with the technology that you were willing to say, this is a meaningful pivot that we need to make today? A major advantage for us is that SigTech, we are not a financial institution. We are small and we are not regulated. We just focus on technologies and we make tools. So our consideration is understandably a lot less complex and nuanced than the financial institutions. But when we speak to some of the larger financial institutions and we discuss this, the number one question we raised was data privacy. They would ask about, okay, and let's say, okay, our employees use ChatGPT to do their job. What happens to these queries, right? Is OpenAI going to use the queries to train the models? Are they collecting our queries, therefore knowing the essentially a real-time stream of inner workings of our business? And if you are like an investor or trader and you ask the queries, that this you leak your alpha. So there's a lot of question essentially around data privacies. So that's something that's like the number one question people ask. The other one is more about more like the AI skeptics. And they are like, oh, what's the big deal? And the truth is, large language models didn't just happen overnight. Open AI has been around for 10 years. So they have been working on this for 10 years, making steady progress, and then really reached like inflection point, but the whole AI revolution going back decades. So before large language models, there were deep learning. You know, the neural networks were invented in the 70s and people were thinking, oh my God, this is like the best thing, the major breakthrough, the modeling our computer system, you know, like our own brains. And it's so generic, it's so trainable. Industry went through um, what we call like AI winter. And people realized actually you know, this kind of a generic and the neural networks couldn't compete 
in terms of performance with the handcrafted algorithm. So they were abandoned. The people went back to crafting you know, domain-specific, narrow machine learning systems like image recognition for speech recognition. And then the ImageNet came in, I think, in the early 2000s. And they say, actually, we spent multiple years, I think the professor at Stanford, her team spent multiple years collecting millions of images or creating the image net and the classifications. And suddenly a deep neural network with sufficient data and the computation suddenly outperforming all the handcrafted algorithms. So what I'm trying to say is the AI industry has been through multi-decades of up and down. There are summers, there are winters, and all the four seasons come and go. So it's natural for people to be very skeptical what's different this time. So that's kind of the second most commonly asked question. So my answer to that is, well, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> so the reasoning engine we have today is generic, and everybody can test it. Just test it. You are the expert in finance. Just have a chat about finance. If you are an expert in legal affairs, just have a chat about legals, and you realize it's really a game changer. So on the data privacy side, I want to circle back to that is we got comfortable with that because that's a very common feedback and question asked by everybody. So openly, I came out very quickly to address it. They introduced like data privacy controls. They have the data privacy policies, and on a per-user basis, you can turn off sharing your queries and your conversations so that they are not used by them to improve their models. And then they are in the middle of rolling out enterprise versions of the ChatGPT, where data privacy is a given for enterprise customers, it's absolutely given. So that's being resolved. And if you don't want to use the OpenAI products, there's a whole ecosystem of open source large language models, such as Llama, Lama 1, Lama 2, and the people have been fine-tuning these foundational models into different domains. And the beautiful thing about using open-source models is that you can host it yourself. You can host it in your environment, and you can deploy them in a secure private cloud environment. Think of it as a generative AI in a box that satisfies all the normal enterprise software requirements. So I think... It's kind of hard to imagine that we only have had ChatGPT for less than a year, but the speed at which the entire ecosystem around generative AI is moving is really tremendous. I think in the next weeks and months, a lot of the questions either will be answered or will become obsolete. <laughs> so that's one of the exciting aspects of being part of this revolution. You mentioned on our pre-call that there are different design philosophies that are necessary when designing APIs for large language models as your clients versus humans as your clients. Can you expand on what you meant by that? Before I talk about designing APIs for large language models, let me just highlight two major limitations with large language models. The first one is the lack of access to updated data because by design any ai models is trained on a vast corpus of data sets and the moment the training is finished the ai models knowledge base stops being updated so there's always a gap knowledge gap in terms of the ai model and with the real world that we live in real time so by construction the ai models knowledge base is always out of date the other limitation is 
large language models today are reasoning engines, incredible reasoning engines, but they need tools to complete tasks in certain domains. It's kind of similar to us humans. We have all learned math in school, so we know the concepts of math. We know how the formula works. We know how to do square root calculus, but we still need tools such as a calculator to actually crunch the numbers. So being able to use tools is so important. I mean, I think when people say tool usage is like one of the major difference between humans and other animals or types of homo sapiens. So tool use and access to up-to-date data, those are two challenges that have to be addressed. So if we think about APIs, APIs is currently the most common way to provide tools to large language models. What that means is that, let's say I ask the question, tell me how the SMP has performed this year. Now, it immediately runs into two issues. A, the knowledge cutoff for the GPT-4 was September 2022. So by definition, it has no idea what happened in year 2023. Number two is even if it had access to the SMP time series, unless there is some kind of article in textual form that talk about the exact returns from the 1st of January to today, the 15th of November, there's no way for the large language model to just easily work out these calculations. But large language model know that, oh, maybe there's some tool or API exists that allows me to deal with this. So what happened is you can provide API with a function signature, but also with very detailed description. And then you put all this together in something called an open API spec. And you give this spec to the large language models and large language models will go through this pretty detailed spec and understand, okay, there are 10 APIs each API does certain things. Each API accepts certain parameters. Some parameters are required. Some are optional. Each parameter has a certain type. And then each API has a certain response. The response comes in a certain format, most likely in a structured JSON. The JSON should look like this. There's a schema to it. As long as you express the APIs in a spec, which is essentially the textual form, the large language model actually is able to use it. So when I asked the question about SMP return, you know, from this year, uh, year to date, the large language models were able to generate function calls. It literally rests the code on the fly, call the certain APIs to do the calculations, and then get results back. So that's how the true usage for large language models work today. So Corey, if I go back to your question about what are the major design decisions when we design APIs for large language models versus humans. When we design APIs for humans, we tend to follow a very modular approach, which is we try to constrain that each API to do a very specific thing. So it's a very specific task, very narrowly defined, and very well understood signature, keep it simple. So we're relying on the humans to figure out how to compose these APIs in the right way. If they make mistakes, they will use debuggers and will fix it. Happy days. Now, with large language models, it's a bit different because 
if we present the large language model with dozens or hundreds of APIs, now think about what happens in the model. So when we make a query, first there's the question of true selection. So the large language model has to figure out, or given a query, which tools among these 100 tools have been given I should use that's relevant. And then that's the true selection. And let's say it made the right choice. And then there's the second stage, which is tool coordination, which is like, okay, now I have these 10 tools I have to use, but in what order do I use this API first and use response as the input of the next one? I mean, how do I chain them in the right way? So you see the complexity here is combinatorial. So very quickly, it's getting out of control. So the performance of true usage by large language models goes down rapidly if they are presented with too many choices. So that becomes a huge consideration in terms of do we expose fewer APIs with more generic functionalities? And that actually is the case. I want to give an example, like the one of the most popular plugins for ChatGPT is from Wolfram Alpha. If you look at their API, there's only one API. There's only one API. It's called Wolfram Alpha Query. And then all it takes is a natural language kind of a style input screen. And then they do the entire computation of figuring out what that means on their side. The reason that's a very extreme example, but that's because Wolfram Alpha spent decades essentially building a kind of a natural language powered infrastructure and system on their side. So when they expose an API, to large language models, all they do is expose one API. Send me some natural language, we will sort it out. But I think for most systems, the way we expose our functionalities as SIGTAG to large language models, we try to keep the APIs to less than a dozen. Less than a dozen. Probably like lower single digits. Because the more we expose, the more corner cases, the more easily confused the large language models are. I think the other major consideration is latency. Because when you have, say, a large number of APIs exposed to the large language model, what happens is, let's say the query requires 10 steps. So the large language model have to make like 10 API calls in the right order with the right parameters to make it work. Now, that means 10 round trips between the large language model and the API endpoints. There's 10 round trips over the internet. And it's sequential. There's no way for you to make it parallel. There are no way for you to speed it up. And if anything breaks in the middle, you kind of have to start from scratch. So when we try to minimize this latency and multiple round trips, there's this kind of pressure to shift more and more logic in terms of the API composition onto our end so that Instead of exposing 100, we expose say, three. So there are only three round trips at most. So I think that's also become a hugely important consideration. And I think this is one of the reasons why I see Microsoft Azure um, cloud service to have a distinct advantage because they host the OpenAI models in the Microsoft Azure environment. And you can also run our infrastructure, like API endpoints and services in the same data center, right? The latency naturally is 
lower, just being able to do everything in the same data centers versus running a hosted models in the open AI data center, which is essentially the Microsoft data center, and then running your services elsewhere in Amazon or in Google Cloud, then you have to incur this massive cross-internet latency. I think that's a major consideration as well. And the last one is, I think, again, to make the large language models use the APIs correctly, there is what we call the fine-tuning so that the models can generate more often correct and reliable structured output because the API output has to be valid JSON objects and that follows certain schemas. It takes some fine-tuning of the models to generate them correctly. I think in the latest announcement by OpenAI Dev Day last week, they actually offered developers a flag to say, I want the output to be a JSON. And then they actually built in this native support for JSON output into the model decoders. So to make the model literally incapable of generating invalid JSON output, I think that's a huge step in helping developers using large language models to write code and making API calls. So I want to make this all a little bit more concrete with an example. And so let's say I fed a query into your interface that says something like plot the returns of going long the Magnificent Seven and short the NASDAQ. Can you walk me through how that process works in the background and how ChatGPT figures out the right API calls? This is a super interesting example. So pretend I'm the GPT-4, <laughs> not as intelligent. Pretend I'm the GPT-4 and then I receive this query from Corey. And then first I would realize, oh, this sentence, I see the words returns. Okay, return can mean anything. It could be return a parcel to Amazon, but returns in the context of Magnificent 7 and particularly short NASDAQ, it means financial returns. So this query is about financial returns. Okay, and then I remember that I have a bunch of tools exposed to me by a company called SigTech, and one of the APIs says, this API allows you to fetch the financial data of financial instruments and calculate their performance. Now I realize, okay, now this query re require me to have the performance metrics of two things. The first thing is Magnificent 7, and then the second thing is NASDAQ. Now I need to make two calls to this API to figure them out. But again, let me first figure out what's Magnificent 7. This is where I dive into my own <laughs> amazing reasoning capabilities to figure out, oh, Magnificent 7 in this context means the seven most popular or largest stocks in the tech sector. And actually, it's part of my knowledge base because I was trained and I know. So I know the names of the companies. Okay. Then I realized, now I know the name of the companies. There's an API call exposed by SigTech says, when you want to look up the ticker or like the unique ID of a financial instrument by passing the names or some context, call this. So I call this API and say, hey, these are seven companies I want to play with in terms of financial calculation. Tell, tell me the tickers. Tell me what do I do. So that API will actually return. So, okay, these are the seven tickers. And then what you need to do is to construct a total return 
a very simple total return strategy on this because some of these companies pay dividends. You need to receive the dividends, so not just price return, but actually like total return. And these are the API you need to call to construct that. So I then I proceed to call that API to construct seven total returns for the seven stocks. And then once we have those back, I realize I need to turn that into a portfolio. And then there's an API for that. So I call the API to construct the basket of these seven stocks because I don't have any extra context. So I would just assume, again, using my reasoning capabilities, it's going to be equally weighted. It's going to be rebalanced maybe quarterly. And that's other parameters I use to construct it. And voila, I got it back. I now have a lonely single stock portfolios at my disposal. The next step, Nasdaq. I call the API from SIGTAG asking, Nasdaq, what's the right tickers? What instruments are we talking about? The SIGTAG replies, Nasdaq, well, we want to short it, so it has to be tradable. So most likely, you have to use the rolling futures. You have to roll the Nasdaq 100 futures, or you can use ETF. I actually choose to use the futures this time. So I say, okay, construct this rolling futures strategy on Nasdaq 100 index. Tell me when you're done. When I get that back, now I have two legs, the long leg and the short leg. Then I call the basket API again to say, I want to long this, the long the magnificent seven basket portfolio. I want to short the rolling futures strategy on Nasdaq and then tell me the returns and then plot the graph. Finally, I get everything back, I synthesize, and generate a coherent description of the entire output, including the numbers, including the performance metrics, such as sharp ratio, drawdowns, returns, volatility, and also I generate the chart. And that's what I return to you, Corey, as a user in the ChatGPT chat window. It's very complicated, but the whole thing takes about 40 seconds. So one of the most amazing things to me about the example you just gave is the large language model's ability to implicitly infer context. There's a lot of decisions, default decisions that were made in that example based on context. But when we're talking about quant strategies, nuance details matter. And any sort of incorrect inference could mean the difference between success or failure of the strategy. So how do you expose these inferences to researchers without the whole process just unwinding back into low-level coding? Yeah, so I have to say something on this ability of large language models to make kind of assumptions quite often in the right way. That's actually built into it because fundamentally, the large language model is trained to do one seemingly very simple thing, which is given a string of words, predict the most likely next word, and then keep going. That's all it does. And then this seemingly simple ability turned out to be so good and so effective at capturing the structure of a human language. And because human language is nothing but a concrete expression of a human thought, so large language models also happen to capture the structure of human thoughts. So that's where all this inference capabilities come from. So if you think about its ability to come up with the right context and you infer from like such a short like sentence of query, it's just because all this kind of extra information is the most likely words that you would have said if you, you said it. So that's how the language models that kind of complete your sentence, almost like make it longer to provide the context by itself. You can almost think of it like 
SQL query and the large language models appended another 200 words to it because that's the most likely following 200 words if you were to clarify what you actually mean. And that's what drives all the actions afterwards. And going back to your question about this nuanced details, I don't think that's free lunch. So, I mean, if you don't express your nuanced preferences or like certain very detailed decisions, if you don't express them to the large language models, I mean, there is no way, especially when these are extraordinary decisions, which means those are not expected, meaning they are not predicted by default because they are kind of on the left or right tail of this distribution of words, then just like any human, if you don't tell them, they are not going to guess it correctly. So there's no free lunch here. So if a user, however, I want to say the large language model is, is highly malleable, right? The more you tell them, the more they get you. So I think really the key here is if you are a certain user that you don't really have very nuanced opinions, it's okay. Just have a not very nuanced discussion, and that's what you get. But if you are a quant trader, you're very nuanced, you can go deep. You can go deep, have a very deep conversation, and you can zoom in and zoom out and then customize specific details. You can have a super long conversation to get to what you want. I think what's amazing about the large language models is that it completely topples people's traditional idea of what computer program is. We grew up thinking of computer program as a pretty dumb, especially deterministic piece of software. We run it in one way, we get one results back. It's very predictable. Whereas large language models, it's totally malleable. So we have this new whole areas of called prompt engineering. I think for the most sophisticated users, they can not only have a very nuanced conversation or super nuanced conversation with the large language models, but they can actually ask the large language model to generate the code. And then they can take the code and use it as the starting point for them to really further customize and control all the aspects at all levels. So in general, I think people should take a more open kind of attitude towards larger language models as a tool instead of thinking they are like very narrow applications that only produce deterministic and predictable output. One of the interesting ideas here is that in the future, strategies will no longer have to be shipped as code, but could actually, in theory, be shipped as text. And I want to contrast that with sort of some of the subtleties of language. And there's this idea called contrastive stress which highlights that the same sentence can have a completely different meaning depending upon the emphasis we place on each word. So for example, the sentence, I only gave her flowers, means something different if I say, I only gave her flowers versus I only gave her flowers. So one of my questions back to you would be, if we move from this world of code to text, do we risk creating too much room for subtlety and misunderstanding? I actually think this is more of a feature than a bug. Again, there's no free lunch. If the sentence is very short and leaves a lot of room for interpretation, then whether it's a large language model or it's a human on the receiving end of it, they will have to do a lot of guessing. A lot of the guessing is based on the commonly shared context between the sender and the recipient. 
So if the human on the receiving end, if this person knows you very well, and he may be able to infer a lot of context around it. But if it's a large language model that you have been using or conversing for problem solving and intellectual discussions for a long period of time, the model could potentially already have a good understanding or memory of your preferences. And then it may also infer correctly the context around it. But if the recipient is a stranger or a large language model that has no idea about the context, and then I think it's fair game. And I think the feature, uh, what I mean by the feature in this case is that if I receive a text, a sentence, which represents the essence of an idea from you, then instead of seeing the room for interpretation as room for confusion, I may just see it as room for creativity. I may build upon the essence of the idea that you have shared with me and apply my preferences and my ideas on top of it. In some sense, we may be looking at a very interesting kind of application of large language models. It's almost like a very lossy compression. Besides the application of this to quant strategies, I mean, is there a way, for example, when we go to a website, rather than having one picture of a cat that everybody sees, actually the website is built in with a text saying there's a cat sitting near a window with a sunset in the background. And then when you or I visit the website, the image is actually generated on the fly by our browsers using the large language models that have already learned certain preferences of us. So I may see a cat. Actually, I will see a different cat from yours and a different window from yours and a different sunset. I think that opens up a huge room for being creative, but also by being the nature of the compression, the size of the sentence describing the essence of this picture, our strategy is far, far, far smaller than the full picture and the strategy itself. I think that can have certain implications in terms of internet bandwidth, in terms of latency, where the creativity part of it maybe opens up like a new possibility for customized advertisement on the user end. So pros and cons, but I tend to focus on the more interesting, productive side of it. When working with code and different packages, at this point, there's a well-defined process for changing APIs over time so that any developers are aware of breaking changes. How would you expect this to work with something like an LLM? For example, if I tell GPT-4, the example we used before, go long the Magnificent 7 and short the NASDAQ, is it possible that GPT-5 would give me an entirely different solution? I think the way human deal with changes in APIs is entirely manual, right? So it's very painful when someone introduces a breaking change, meaning that there's some change in the signature or the change in the input and output. That's the only way to deal with it is to manually find every single occurrence when the old API has been used and replace it with a new one. It's very painful. But the thing about LM is that they write code on the fly, right? So when you ask the same query with GPT-5, and when GPT-5 
is provided with a different sets of APIs to solve the problems, it will actually ingest and synthesize and utilize the signatures of these new APIs on the fly and write the code on the fly because everything is written from nothing, from scratch. So there's no manual migration of old code to new code. I think the code generation abilities, especially across multiple programming languages, such as Python, JavaScript, and SQL, is a huge breakthrough in terms of the applications of RM to our daily lives. What do you think the future looks like for quant researchers now that LLMs are here and going to stay? I think for quant researchers, currently we spend so much time on operations, such as data-related operations, and so much time on implementing our ideas, but not enough time to focus on essentially having new ideas and stay up to date with the market, especially when the macro environment is changing so fast. I think as we see more advancement in the artificial intelligence, the generative AI, I think what's going to happen is we are going to see this gradual, maybe even accelerating shift in terms of the nature of the knowledge workers to shift from finding the right answers and implementing the right solutions to actually just asking the right questions. So think about how a research institute works. If you are the research director of an institute and you are leading a team of a dozen researchers, how does the division of labor work? The researchers are responsible for finding the answers. They are responsible for getting things done. They do it, they see the results, they give you the feedback. But as the director, your job is to make sure that you are asking the right questions. You are spending the resources, both in terms of people and in terms of time, on the worthy questions, and you are traveling down the right path. If you are going down the wrong path, you want to cut it short, turn back, and go down a different direction. So in this sense, as we see the applications of large language models, especially when we augment the reasoning engines with data and tools such as APIs, we are essentially be able to create what we call autonomous AI agents. And these AI agents are like AI researchers. And then each researcher, human researcher today, essentially is elevated into the role of a traditional research director. So that's how I see um, knowledge workers' job will be elevated because each individual will be amplified. That should lead to a huge boost in terms of productivity. And specifically, in finance, when this happens, there will be more participants in the financial market because more people will have better access to the data, to the knowledge, to the analytical firepower that today only the most advanced institutions and people have access to. This democratization will lead to more participants in the market and hopefully will ultimately make the market more efficient. Um, At the end of the day, financial market is the cornerstone of a working and functioning capitalist society. Well, Ben, we find ourselves at the end of the episode here, but I do have one more question for you, and it's the question I'm wrapping up every episode this season with. 
And with a new season, you actually, I know you just listened to some of the old season. This is going to be a new question for you. So we're catching you a little bit off guard. And I suspect I might know what your answer is here. But the question I'm asking this season is, what are you obsessed with or obsessed about today? Currently, I'm quite obsessed with the different types of reactions to AI, especially from people from different cultural backgrounds. So, for example, I'm Chinese. I grew up with an Asian culture. And in Asia, people are far more receptive to the ongoing revelation of artificial intelligence. People tend to be more positive about the change that AI will usher in in the next few years. Whereas I think in the West, in the UK, for example, based on my personal experiences, wherever I talk about AI with my friends and my neighbors, they tend to have a very negative or pessimistic attitude toward this. They all tend to think that, oh my God, AI is going to replace everyone's jobs. It's Terminator coming true, or it's like a Matrix, the film coming true. It's a very polar opposite to the people who are from an Asian cultural background, like Chinese or Japanese. I find it quite fascinating because then I realized that in a Japanese culture, the Japanese society is traditionally extremely conservative. It's a bit xenophobic, it's quite conservative, but it embraces anything like AI and robots so enthusiastically. If you watch like the Japanese TVs or Japanese manga, the robots in the culture, in the media, are always the good guys. They are friends of the mankind. They help mankind conquer evil and solve problems and make the world a better place. Whereas in the West, you look at the sci-fi, the films, the robots are always the bad guys. You have the Terminators, you have the Matrix, the the machines, when it's smart enough, will enslave the mankind. I find it's quite fascinating. And I realized maybe the one explanation for this contrast is that in the Asian culture, there is a much more elements of collectivism. We grew up used to the idea that the collective, like organization or the institution, are more important than any individual. We sort of just accept this as a way of life. And institutions are more robust, they last longer, and individuals simply play a certain role in this big machine. Whereas in the West, I feel maybe the culture is more about individuals, it's more individualistic. There's a lot of a strong preference toward individualism. Therefore, the idea of this AI all-seeing or dancing machine, which Ultimately, it's the aggregation of the knowledge and intelligence of everyone in the world. And the idea that this supreme kind of ultimate form of the collective is superior to every single individual and may even render the individuals obsolete is terrifying. So I see these cultural differences and directly leading to this contrasting attitude toward arguably the most important development in human history. And I feel like this attitude has a huge impact on the sort of receptions and support for the AI technologies. Does this mean that Asia will win the race because in some sense by embracing more the AI, whereas the Western world will 
lag a bit behind because they are more skeptical, they are more pessimistic. This does have a very not just like intellectual or philosophical musing, but I think this has a huge impact on the world in the next few years, given the pace at which things are developing, and given the fact that the race to AGI, the application of AGI. We have been shrinking our estimate from you know, a hundred years to ten years to now three years and even eighteen months. I'm just paying a lot of attention, and certainly being maybe extra sensitive to the adoption of this due to cultural differences and see how that play out in a world where we are already seeing more frequent eruptions of geopolitical uncertainties. So that's the something I've been obsessed about. I hope to have given a good answer. Not the one I expected, but one I certainly enjoyed, and, and one that it will make me take pause and think more about as well. Ben, this has been phenomenal. I can't thank you enough for joining me. Corey, such a pleasure to be here, and all the good luck with the new season podcast. Thank you. Thank you.